Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode. There you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week, we'll discuss Trump because he's back in NFT form and some Christmas movie recommendations before we take a two-week break from this podcast for Christmas and New Year's. But first... Let's take another look at China. We've talked about China a couple of times in recent episodes. We've covered the protests that have been going on there. We have covered what has been happening vis-a-vis the Jimmy Lai trial that has been delayed in Hong Kong until September 2023. Uh, There is some interaction back and forth with Beijing that also has to do with that trial. But the, the impetus for the protests that we were seeing across China was COVID policy. China, of course, has been adhering to this uh, COVID zero policy for, well, basically the entirety of the pandemic, which has gone as far and as extreme as more or less shutting down cities, welding people into their apartments uh, to make sure that this virus did not uh, spread around in the same way that we saw it spread around the rest of the world. They have unreliable numbers, or at least it's just with their economic numbers, we have unreliable numbers in terms of what an actual death toll coming out of China is. Uh, there was a period of time, if I remember, where months went by, and I think they reported one COVID death, and the the idea that the rest of the world was experiencing what it was experiencing. But in China, where this thing started, whether it was you know coming from a lab or whether it was coming from bat soup... It's where it started. You would think that the death toll would have been higher there, but you know, of course, the official numbers are are not to be believed. But we are seeing now Beijing, the Chinese Communist Party, relenting on some of these COVID policies. And I want to throw out this kind of hypothetical problem as we analyze the impact of China making this decision. What we do know is if we're comparing the quality of vaccines that exist out there, The ones developed in the West, Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, uh, proven far more effective, efficacious than the one that Russia developed and then the one that China developed. And if we also look at the populations in China, which ones are more heavily vaccinated than others, it is disproportionately younger people in China who are vaccinated and older people who are not. Now, note what we know about COVID-19 is that it disproportionately affects older people. So there's a potentiality here with China easing up off of the COVID restrictions that they have been, the COVID zero policies they've been holding on to for so long, that whatever variant is now buzzing around in China goes sweeping through that country, uh, infecting a lot of older people. And we could see a higher than you would expect death toll as a result from all of that, which I can only imagine would have some kind of uh, it, 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 it would cause problems for the Chinese Communist Party and the regime that is that is running that country. So that is the kind of lay of the land right now. And it, there's an open question as to even whether relenting on these covid policy items are going to appease the people who have been protesting there for a number of weeks now. So that is the lay of the land right now in China. What do you make of it? I mean, I think, first of all, um Everyone should be thankful that at least so far, this didn't result in another Tiananmen Square. Um, So I'd say whether or not people are satisfied, this is a huge success for the people protesting. Um, So that's, I think, let's start with the positive there. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what to think. As you mentioned, you know, you can't trust any of the numbers coming out of there. Uh, one of the, the biggest issues I had about our domestic COVID uh, response is that I really think it should have been varied based on population density um, because in a city like Detroit, really hard to stop something spreading around. So maybe be more strict there. Uh, but, you know, 
in Traverse City, to use another example from Michigan, um, just, you you know, it's pretty easy to kind of socially distance in a responsible way. Um, And so Beijing, Hong Kong, um, you know, cities like this are some of the most population-dense cities in the world. Um, On the one hand, you know, that lends a little support to, okay, they want to be extra cautious. On the other hand, there is a certain futility that comes with it, too. Um, So I don't know. I think if you have a vaccine, you encourage as many people to get it as you can. Um, I guess we can also be thankful they don't seem to be forcibly vaccinating the elderly. Uh, um, But, uh, yeah, you know, there's a reality here. And the reality is that even the best vaccine is not going to be 100 percent successful. And we Um, do know that it does not really – it, it doesn't stop transmission. No, it, what we it, learned about the vaccines is that they have been very effective if you get infected with COVID nineteen for giving you a much better chance of not dying from. Yeah, it. well, and they do both. I mean, they do reduce your chances of getting it, but they don't guarantee you're not going to get it. But they also then reduce uh, the severity of it. So you put those two things together, and you end up with uh, you know a lot of societies able to uh, return to um, you know get their economies open again and everything like that. Um, so there, there's a reality and there, there's a lot of ways they could go about this. They could continue to just dig in their heels, right? And deny that reality and say, this is an extremely infectious disease and we are a virus and we are going to beat it. Um, and this is how, uh, through these policies, or they could, uh, take a cue. They could keep doing the misinformation thing to say, we beat it. And just not tell anyone the official numbers, um, as I'm sure, you know, somewhere like North Korea, I, you know, they might have, I, I can't remember, I'd have to look it up again, but I swear they said like, no, no COVID here. Like, we're great. Like, you know, like. Just um, like in uh, uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, first ever golf game, he, I think, had like, you know, uh, 14 hole-in-ones. Yeah. So they're, they're reliably I mean, accurate with their information. it's an exceptional place there. in so many ways. Amazing things happen. Um, so, I mean, you know, if you're a totalitarian uh, government, there are a lot of ways to bend the truth. Um, I don't recommend any of them because I don't recommend totalitarianism. But uh, there are better and worse ways for people who don't want to admit the reality. And the reality is, this is this is a disease that's going to go around, uh, a virus that's going to go around, um, and hopefully you can prevent the severity. Now, I, I would add, uh, and I don't know the situation exactly in China, but one one detail that I do think is worth mentioning is it's not just old people. It's very old people who are at risk for especially fatalities with COVID um, and people with pre-existing conditions. So things like uh, respiratory issues um, and things like diabetes, um, weight issues for whatever reason, um, compound this. Uh, this sort of information that we knew pretty early on, but it's only been in the last like year or so that I've actually seen our own government try to spread the word on this kind of stuff. Um, so that's another thing that, you know, if handled well, which I, I don't have any idea whether or not they will, um, perhaps simply a little bit of public education, real education, not, you know, bogus propaganda, uh, might help people determine who needs to be more cautious than others and how to be cautious. So um, I don't know. I look at it as positive for the protesters. I, I don't know. I guess I can't speculate very well about, uh, you know, what comes about if, if this backfires and, and it starts. I mean, it, I think it inevitably will spread more if more people are interacting. There's, there's no way it won't. Um, the question is, how do they respond to it? How do they cover it on their state media? It's not like, you you know, you might have people... I don't know, even people's phones and their social media is pretty restricted by the government over there. So it's not like you can get like this viral. Maybe you can. Maybe hopefully there's still some way for people to to freely express themselves. But, you know, how is this how is the news going to spread other than through state TV? And if it's spreading through state TV, then it's whatever line the government wants to to push. So um, weirdly, that's maybe a security against panic. One of the things to keep in mind when. And this is just to sort of set the table for, for, for listeners is, is how restrictive these policies have been. To give you a for instance of a story that I know, you know, many people in dense urban centers in China live in high rise apartments and you would get maybe one, maybe several people, maybe one per floor person who was allowed to make grocery runs for the entire floor. And they would have to get on this personal protective gear that would be, you know, uh, ridiculous by American standards, even at the very 
height of pandemic when some people were wearing respirators, this sort of thing. This is like full body. Full suits. hazmat suit. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, you will, you would, it's, you know, things do get out of China and you will see people post things like these are the three root vegetables that I have for the rest of the week before my floor or my building's representative is allowed to go to the grocery store. So this is the kind of severity of lockdowns that were never experienced in the West, like at its worst. No one has ever experienced this level of surveillance, this level of isolation, and this sort of thing. So you are going to have, as these roll back, you are going to have more substantial problems, you know, in terms of rising case rates. You have a less effective vaccine. We know it's less effective. We don't know how less effective because, again, these excess fatality numbers coming out of, you know, let's say the Russian Federation, which has developed the, uh, the Sputnik vaccine or out of China with Sinovax, like no one believes these numbers. No one believes that these are reliably reported in the same way that excess fatalities in other parts of the world are. And in some places, they're just, they're just difficult to report. Um, so you have also coming up Chinese New Year. When many people leave from urban centers to visit relatives in more rural areas, if you've seen, I don't know how relaxed these policies are going to be in the near term, but this is something that before the sort of COVID lockdowns, you would have a tremendous amount of train travel throughout mainland China of people going to visit family, these sorts of things. So we have you know, a constellation of things that could lead to real disaster. Um, and this is one of those things where, you know, we have seen the Chinese, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is willing to trade uh, stability for quality of life. That is part of what they've been trading with this zero COVID policy, now that this zero COVID policy is causing political instability, they're willing to trade another kind of quality of life for that. Um, so this is this is something that is that is uh, I think very important for folks in the West to watch. It's going to be very important. It'll be interesting to see what sort of reporting gets out, what sort of picture develops. Uh, but, you know, this might be the right trade in terms of, you know, these these COVID lockdowns have become the locus of popular unrest we've seen throughout China. And this might be a trade that everyone is comfortable making at this point. Um, and uh, as um, these elements of the surveillance state recede, hopefully that gives other opportunities for other forms of freedom to improve in China. I'm glad you made the point about the severity of the lockdowns that China experienced versus the kind of things that happened in the West, particularly in the United States. Um, it, it has been a source of mild frustration to me as I have traveled with the documentary we released this year, The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom, um, that... I'll get questions occasionally where people look at the kind of things that are happening in Hong Kong. They see what we've documented in that film, and then I'll get something like, this is just like what's happening here in the United States. And like, I understand where they're coming from in making that point. But like, we're talking about differences in degree and kind that make it truly, to me, non-comparable. You know, the kinds of restrictions on freedom of speech, freedom of the press, just your general human freedom that is happening, that is being taken away from the people of Hong Kong is just not comparable to anything that is happening here in the United States. <clears throat> Similarly, the lockdowns that we experienced in, in the United States were bad. They were problematic. They have created uh, numerous issues that we are still dealing with. I, I had a conversation, uh, the radio program that I co-host last night 
about uh, inflation where I, I always feel compelled to make the David Bonson point about the inflation that we're experiencing, that Milton Friedman was right in his definition, that it is too much money chasing too few goods and services. And so many people for political reasons want to allocate all of the blame on the too much money side, that we've spent so much money and that's why we're getting inflation without factoring in David Bonson's point, which is what's happening on the supply side there, that we shut down the economy, we shut down the world economy, we interrupted supply chains in a way that still really haven't fully filled in yet. Um, So that it is – We'd been spending money, like, you know, ramping up over years and never saw this kind of inflation. What was the big change? It was on the supply side, not on the on the money and the demand side. It was both. It was, it, it was both. It was really big on, on the money it, it side. It was both. But the question I think that – uh, the point that I think it's he's making – It's been big on but, the money side for yeah. a long time. Yeah. Right. And well, we but in the last two years of, especially. But the it was extra supply big. side is important. It you're, was extra right big. But like there's – you know, yeah. we were seeing this kind of increasing spending and we were not getting in, you know, inflation – numbers even yeah. more right. mild than the kind of thing that we're seeing now. So right. I think it's, it's a point well taken. Um, the But the lockdowns, to your point, that we experience in the United States are just not comparable to what China is doing, which, which leads me to the question that I keep grappling with, because as we've pointed out, the Chinese Communist Party certainly has an indifference to um, quality of life and an indifference to uh, human life in general. You see what they're doing to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Uh, why go about these COVID zero policies in the first place? I mean, I understand the propaganda value of it to say that, you know, people aren't dying from COVID here, but that like that almost becomes, I, I feel in their propaganda, at least their internationally directed propaganda, that China is actually fairly smart about it in that the things they say are believable in a way that go back to North Korea. Nobody, like zero people have died of COVID and Kim Jong-un invented the hamburger and also had 14 holes in one in his first round of golf. Things that people around the world and in the West will look at and laugh at because they are absurd. Uh, So I can understand the propaganda value of it to a certain extent, but the kinds of things that were necessary and the impacts that we know have to be happening on the Chinese economy as a result of these measures of shutting down major cities have to be incredibly difficult for them because they're incredibly difficult further down the supply chain lines here in the United States and other places as well. I I just can't quite fully figure why even pursue these policies in the first place. I think it's because you saw very early days in the pandemic – I mean, we remember when f- things were first coming out of China in terms of the of uh, <clears throat> COVID. We had, you know, pictures of you know people f- keeling over on the street, sort of things. Now, <clears throat> how much of that, you know, is you know again this is you know footage that was getting out in fits and starts, and but you had legitimate concern around the world that COVID-19 was more severe than it wound up being. There was the possibility that it could mutate and change to be more severe than it already was. Um, And there were not the sort of vaccines, even the sort of inferior quality vaccines that we see coming out of China. Um, And they were able to do this. I mean, they were able, the sort of state capacity infrastructure, the surveillance state that they had built made this possible in a way that it wasn't in the West. And and even more so, it made it – people had been habituated to this sort of surveillance and this sort of control in other aspects of their lives within China that uh, folks in the West hadn't been. So that's part of it. Part of it is also bureaucratic inertia. We tend to forget that, you know, we have this vision of American politicians and they're the politicians that we like and the politicians that we don't like. And we tend to lose sight in the day to day that uh, their views and positions change in response to the median voter. They do so often slowly, often subtly, but they do. There are not those sort of feedback loops that exist in democracy 
in a party-led dictatorship like this. You also have to understand that everyone high up in the party is insulated from the greatest privations that are visited upon ordinary people that come with the sacrifices with these sorts of lockdowns. Um, this is, again, you know, something that is unique, um, you know. All of, you know, I have run into, uh, in the course of my life, three different congressional representatives of uh, my district and my local bank. Once when I was a child, once when I was in high school, and once, uh, you know, uh, about a decade ago. This is something that the equivalent sort of person in China does not do. And this is a wonderful thing because our representative, you know, m you know, although the politically powerful in America are insulated in all sorts of ways, there are also all sorts of ways they come into contact with ordinary people and their ordinary concerns all the time in a way that's just not true in a communist dictatorship. So I think, you know, those combination of forces will lead to, you know, the incentive structures being different and can allow un until you really have this widespread civil disobedience, like the unknown. I mean, think of the consequences if you're if you're the the official in the Politburo that decides, oh, maybe this is costing our economy too much. Oh, maybe this um, is you know. Uh, maybe this in the long term will cause political destabilization. We should ease up. Well, there's a target on your back now as the guy when those excess fatality numbers come in. There's a target on your back, and it's just so much easier for bureaucrats to defend the status quo than it is for them to loosen up. And it's only when you've seen widespread civil unrest throughout the country that those incentives have been changed enough that – and we're and we and we've yet to see how much this is going to loosen up. I mean, there's there's the expectation that it will, but it could still look very much like a lockdown from North American standards. To make a quick comparison, again, it, it is amazing how that uh, that that incentive issue exists again, even here in the United States. I've, I've used this example for a long time that you know, if you work for the FDA, right? If you're the guy who, and I know this was in Britain, not in the United States, but bear with me. If you're the guy who approves thalidomide, everyone is going to know who you are because you're the one who made an incredibly tragic mistake in improve, approving something for public use that had terrible birth defect impacts on the people who took it. But if you're the person who has in front of you something that is could be potentially life-saving for uh, a group of cancer patients, but you don't know the risk, it, the bias is going to be towards not approving it because if you approve thalidomide and it turns out to be thalidomide, everyone knows who you are. But if you don't approve something that could even be beneficial, nobody knows who you are. They're never going to know who you are. You don't put the target on your back. So that is an incentive structure that exists everywhere. So I think that's quite an understandable one. So another factor, and I, I mean, I can't, you know, of course, we're just speculating. We don't know for sure. But but I, it has to be said, uh, and and we need to be reminded that as a matter of policy, as a matter of ideology, the Communist Party denies economic reality. So why don't they care about supply chain issues? They don't think that the economy works as it does. They just don't. Now, there's got to be some sensible people there that are practically minded that get, oh, this is insane and it's not going to – it's not long-term sustainable. So, I, you know, it's not that reality won't, won't make itself known to them in some way, but from a, from a, a base level, in their textbooks, they are denying the basic elements of knowledge you need uh, to get to a point where you'd say this is not – this is not going to work, right? Um, so there's there's a whole society, a whole political culture as well, built around denying the very tools they need um, to 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 see the the huge huge economic problem uh, with their lockdown policy. Uh, the other side, uh, we kind of hinted at it a little bit, maybe, but I wonder how much of the senior leadership in the party also falls into an at risk demographic. Um, I you know as Dan mentioned, uh, they are insulated from all of the privation that normal people over there are dealing with. Um, 
if they are the sort that are getting up there in years and they're worried about themselves, they might be willing to sacrifice everyone else uh, just for, for the sake of themselves. For point of reference, Xi Jinping is uh, 69 years old. Yeah, so not very old, uh, but old um, and getting there. Um, Certainly within the, the, the realm of people who have been disproportionately affected by COVID in 60s, 70s, sure. 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He'd be on the younger side, but yeah, younger he's, side he's of getting it, yeah. close. Um, and, and who knows? Maybe he's got other health issues. You know, I, it's not public information, right. you know, whether he has diabetes or something like that. Right. Um, the other, the, then the last thing I wanted to, to say, and I, and I, I don't know, and I'm, I, I'd be interested if anyone does, if there's, if the information is out there, but one of the things, in the West that has allowed economies to reopen and function again is not just vaccination, although that was a huge part of it, but treatment. We have effective treatments for COVID-19 now. If you get it, you go to the hospital, even if you're not vaccinated, they can treat it with medication in a way that they were trying desperately with ventilators and it was kind of working and kind of not. Um, it is a different world uh, in terms of what happens if you get COVID-19, at least in the West right now. I have no idea what the case is in China, whether they have any kind of effective treatments or whether they're still basically living in 2020. The only thing I think I would challenge on the economic point of all of it is this is one of the things that makes China so dangerous in a way that the well, Soviet Union was certainly dangerous. They were truly committed to an economic idea of how the world should work or at least how their country should function to the point of their own collapse, right? You know, there's plenty of narratives about it, whether it's United States military spending that drives military spending in the uh, in the USSR that eventually causes them to collapse or just the fundamentals. You know, they, they were just never as strong an economy as even people in the West imagined that they were. What makes China different and more threatening is their willingness to embrace levels of market openness that were never something that would be considered by the Soviet Union. So they're, they're not creating an economic suicide pact like the Soviet Union did, that it was, as I think we would believe here, it was just never going to work out, right? It, communism was, we were never going to realize full communism and things were going to be, you know, great and dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. We were never going to actually see that. Um, so on one level, I, I absolutely agree that they, because of the nature of the regime, the history of all of it, even with these adaptations they've made, they do not have a full understanding of the economic way of thinking, the economic world. However, they have enough of an understanding of it that they have made the kind of changes that they have over the last 20, 30 some years. So they can't be thoroughly ignorant to the impacts that it is actually having on them as well as the rest of the world, but particularly on them. I mean, they have to know the real numbers of their own economy, even if we don't. You know, Deng Xiaoping famously said, not everything is about class struggle. And this was the break. I mean, Dylan is absolutely right that the psychology of, of a pre-Deng China was committed as a matter of policy to economic backwardness. Um, what we see now, though, I think in the, in, the, in the COVID policies and a lot of other things is uh, uh, when the leadership wants it to be about class struggle, it very much returns to that um, as the norm. So there is there – is, I, think, I think I agree, you know, there's a degree of flexibility there, but that flexibility goes both ways depending on, on, on the needs of the regime at the present moment. Let's move on to our next topic, which is – going to be an interesting one because uh, Donald Trump is back and he is running for president again, but uh, he's really back right now in NFT form, which are better than pogs, but that's, you know, just had to get the Simpsons reference in there. He released uh, 45,000 Donald Trump trading card NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And if anybody would like to describe exactly what an NFT is, I don't really want to do it, nor do I feel qualified to do it. So I will leave that to one of you. I think most people listening probably have an idea of what an NFT is. 45,000 of them released, $99 a piece, $4.45 million that was raised uh, in all of this. I, I think this is an interesting story, not just because of Donald Trump's involvement, which, of course, Trump being involved makes it immediately a news story, but also because – and people tend to be grouping together some of these um, online uh, things like 
cryptocurrency, NFTs. You see crypto having a real hard time of it lately with the collapse of um, uh, was it NX? I want to say NXT. FTX. FTX. Getting my acronyms mixed up. That was my guest host episode. Uh, <laughs> And uh, the the trials and tribulations of one Sam Bankman Freed, uh, you know, NFTs have always I've joked that um, they're the one thing that make me question capitalism because uh, I do not understand. Um, I've had it explained to me, and I kind of get it, or at least where it could potentially go. In the same way that people had been arguing to me for years about uh, it, you know, it's not it's not Bitcoin, it's the blockchain, right? It's the thing that underlies it that's incredibly important and has great potential for the future. So I understand part of it, but you know, this is this is a show, right? I mean, this is this is digital Trump stakes, is it yeah. not? Yeah. Oh, so I mean, first thing I will say is NFTs are not better than Pogs. Um, Pogs have a functionality. There is a game you could play with pogs there is nothing you can do with an nft it is a digital it's not even that you exclusively own a file it's just you have the space in the blockchain or whatever is coded to you but you don't get to do anything with that people can screenshot your trump card or whatever your your bored monkey um all they want and have their own copy of it um, it gets you nothing. It is nothing. Um, it just, you know, FTX just crashed uh, because the revelation that there was, you know, it was like an onion. There was nothing on the inside. Um, completely did it in. Um, and so naturally, uh, our the 45th president of the United States of America decided uh, that's that's a good deal. I should get in on that. Um, I look at this and... I don't know. I don't. I guess I don't question capitalism. I think what the lesson here is: people need to make more informed buying decisions. Um, hopefully, they would know that this is nothing, and you shouldn't pay ninety nine dollars for nothing or more. Um, on the other hand, um, people are free to make that choice. There's all kinds of really dumb choices you can make in a free economy. That's just the nature of freedom. Um, in order to have the good, you have to allow for a decent amount of nonsense. Um, so, you know, I look at this and there is nothing illegal about it. I think it's very foolish for anyone to buy uh, these cards. Matters of taste aside, <laughs> you should not, even if you really like Donald Trump uh, in a superhero costume with an american flag cape. laser beams coming out of his eyes draw your own picture on paper it will be worth more and more use to you than an nft um so yeah i mean i just look at it as a, as a mad cash grab um pretty transparently so um and it's it's interesting to me what uh preceded it was Trump told everyone, apparently, that he had a big announcement coming the next day. And there was speculation on the right and the left. What could this be? People were freaking out and worried or excited or whatever. And what it was was exactly what you said, Trump steaks, but in digital form. Steaks that you cannot eat even if you wanted to, which please don't eat a Trump steak. People value things. Uh, it, uh, your, of course, your, your comments were open to this. That you know, if you value it, it's something that you're willing to pay ninety nine dollars for. By all means, go and pay ninety nine dollars for it. I, I think of it in, uh, or at least I've evolved my thinking on in the way that I used to think about the lottery. That it was a self imposed tax on people unwilling or unable to do math. Is you're not going to win. The odds that you're going to win are so incredibly slim. And someone changed my thinking on this. It's like don't think of it that way. It's entertainment. People are purchasing entertainment. They're paying $10 to lose, but with a small, very slim chance that they might win something big, and it's entertaining to them. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's not something that I would be interested in, but, you know, as again, to quote Milton Friedman, I think people uh, tend to value the things they get at the price they pay for them. You can't win if you don't play. And what this shows is the ability, the sort of unique ability that the very few people share. This is one of the very genuine talents that President Trump has, is generating an event. He generated an immense amount of speculation uh, about what this event would be when this event was unveiled. It's important to remember that these sold out within 24 hours. So there was a market. There was a market. These were $99 a piece. 
it's true that you know, and they are now selling on a sec on secondary markets. The cheapest ones were selling for about six hundred and fifty dollars. So what we've seen is an interesting dynamic at play, where you have what is essentially a digital sort of certificate of authenticity. It is true you can see all of the cards. You can you can uh, right click those JPEGs to your heart's content. But what is being sold is being part of this event of being someone who was there when a former president sold NFT superhero trading cards of himself. Um, and evidently that's valued in the, in the aftermarket of around $650, somewhere around there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what this is the further distance we get to the event, from the event. Uh, the longevity of these markets is uh, the track record is not great. No, it's not great, and it's not great for a reason. So this is a, maybe a mini speculative bubble. I doubt it's going to get much higher, but we'll see. Um, but look, in in defense of Pogs, once again, uh, you made the comment you don't get to uh, win. You don't have a chance to win if you don't play. There is, there's no game. There's, there's no value. You're not playing anything. Yes, you can be part of the event, but you know what? I was part of the event, and I didn't spend any money. I just watched it. Um, just because economic value is inherently, you know, fundamentally subjective, which it is, the price of something in a world of free prices is just determined by how many there are and how much people want it. That's good. That's an incredibly valuable way of communicating essential, changeable, localized information on a grand scale. We need that. That doesn't mean that the people are right. <laughs> When they value it, uh, because economic value is not the same as moral value or any other so sort of value. So just because the price is high and people are paying it does not mean that they aren't going to have buyer's remorse next week or next year or whatever the case may be. Um, so I would still recommend against doing it, even if you like uh, the, the art, even if you like our former president, um, I, I don't think this is a good use of your money. It's Christmas time. Uh, you know, donate to a charity or something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, that's just my opinion. Uh, I, I'm happy uh, <laughs> to, to have somebody, you know, explain to me, uh, ir, you know, irrefutably the inherent value of an NFT and especially an NFT of, of Donald Trump dressed as a cowboy. And okay, um, you know, I'll admit that I'm wrong. But right now I'm pretty well, confident. Well, if you can't if you I'm can't right. already see the inherent value of that, then there's nothing I can say that can explain <laughs> it to you. No, I, I uh I think this actually underscores one of the disconnects that has happened since say about the mid two thousands, mid two two thousand aughts that has to do with wealth that has been created in our economy and particularly in this country, especially in the tech space. If you look at somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, who gets that wealthy that quick from creating Facebook, and it's just this it's this thing that clearly exists where, you know, we, we, you engage on it, you have a profile on it, you participate in it, you don't pay any money to participate in it. It's all monetized advertising and the ability to target and access you, the old line about if you're not paying for it, then you're not the customer, you're the product. Um, all of that applies. But it's really non-tangible. Right? You can't really wrap your your hands around it. As compared to say, um, you know, I, I heard somebody give this example um, on another podcast the other day. Like just compared to Henry Ford, right? You can look around and you can point out all the cars and say that's where the money came from. But with Facebook, it's a lot more difficult to look at and go, oh, that's where the money came from. Um, with apologies to whoever made that point that I just ripped it off from. I cannot remember. I listened to too many podcasts, but it was a good point. So I wanted to bring it up. Um, this is another one where there's just this disconnect because it just it doesn't seem real. And yes, that that perceived sense of value uh, is is something that I can't you know if it's valuable to to you and it's not valuable to me, then it's valuable to you and it's not valuable to me, and that indicates the relative price that we would be willing to pay for something. But I, I agree, I have a harder time wrapping my brain around something specifically like this and the supposed inherent value of all of it. Although, I again, just like with what I've been told for years about the blockchain, the implications that it will have for things that could be done in the future are interesting. But board monkeys and the 45th president of the United States with laser beams coming out of his eyes probably isn't the highest and best use of that technology. I think it also says something about um, 
the current state of Trump's 2024 campaign. Um, this is not to say you should ever count the man out as everyone did in 2016 and he came out of nowhere and, you know. Uh, but what they were counting out in 2016 was that he was ahead in all the polls. Um, he is not looking so great, uh, last I checked. Now, I, I need to check again, so I may be wrong about that. Uh, but it seems that uh, Republican voters especially are looking elsewhere. Um, so he made this big announcement right after uh, the midterm election and did not get um, – you know, the the signs saying, hey, this is going to pan out for you. Instead, he's finding ways to capitalize uh, on his ongoing fame and notoriety. Um, I mean, in the, even in terms of teasing this as a big announcement, which you would think everyone thought was a, therefore a political announcement of some sort. And instead it is, here's my newest product. So this is the third of the Russian nesting of the Russian nesting dolls that is this story. Because first there's there's the tease of the announcement, then there's the NFT, and then there is the reaction. Um, most folks that uh, you know, as I've been following this, even folks who have a genuine love and affection for President Trump, who want, are enthusiastic backers of his 2024 campaign seemed annoyed by this Mm -hmm. and really turned off and that this was not the sort of announcement that they were looking for. This was evidently the announcement that 45,000 people were looking for when they gobbled these up. But that's 45,000 people out of a nation of 350-some million people. Um, And that's 45,000 people of, uh, what was it, some 70-some million Voters. That, that, that assumes that each Trump person had. only bought one card, too. Yes, yes, which is probably not the case. So this is this is the other story. Is what is this? What does this tell us about the campaign? How does this affect uh, folks' views of President Trump uh, going into this next campaign as a serious candidate? Because it seems like that this is not being interpreted. Is a serious gesture by a serious candidate. I mean, there's nothing serious about it. And as for collectibles, Russian nesting dolls, once again, far more worth your money. They will retain far more of their value over time. I mean, I can just name a million collectible things that are better than any NFT, not to mention these ones in particular. So I guess first, first and foremost among them, Alf Pogs. Yeah. Yeah. I, more valuable. I, I think and I, I'm willing to bet, in fact. Check the price of Elf Pogs right now, um, and you know, watch the price of Trump NFTs. They will converge, and the Elf Pogs will surpass the Trump NFTs so, at some point. That's it, my prediction. I will make that boldly going into the new year here. So, Elf Pogs are the Mendoza line of NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we've just established a new rule, and I love it. Let, let's move to our final topic for today, which is before we take a two-week break from this program for Christmas and New Year's, uh, we did want to leave you with, uh, you know, you've got, you're going to have some time on your hands in the next couple of weeks. You may be, you know, looking to uh, you know, find a way to pass that time. Movies are a great way to pass that time. So we want to leave you with some of our favorite Christmas movie recommendations uh, to, to help you enjoy the holidays more thoroughly. So a big favorite in our household is Elf uh, with Will Ferrell, um, where he's an elf. Who's... Not to be confused with Alf. Yes, correct. Uh, sorry. Although yes. I imagine elf, elf Pogs are probably also. Um... Yeah, it didn't quite line up. I don't know if anybody made any Elf Pogs. Elf with an E, not Elf with an A. Um, but if they did, I would also bet that those will one day be more valuable than Trump NFTs. Um, but yeah, great kind of heartwarming film it's silly a little off kilter and it's kind of there's a premise of him being the illegitimate child of uh uh james Kahn. so uh you know you have to make sure it's age appropriate for your family and all of that uh, but other than that it's ex- incredibly wholesome and fun um but more recently uh, i recently watched on apple tv uh spirited which is once again a will ferrell holiday film um with Ryan Reynolds uh, as the co-star, uh, one of them. And I was surprised. I thought, oh, it'll be silly. It's Will Ferrell, whatever. And it was. Uh, but it's a musical, for one, which was surprising. Um, it's based on A Christmas Carol, so it's yet another you know, 
re redone version of a Christmas Carol. Um, but it's kind of self-conscious about it. And I was surprised at how wholesome uh, it turned out in, in like, a, in not in a cheesy way, but there was a genuine like moral to it um, that I think was effectively communicated. So I was, I was actually quite surprised. I looked, I went into it just looking for some laughs and I came away thinking, wow, they actually like pulled it off. Uh, even, even knowing that it was, there was kind of a sim- silly premise behind the whole thing uh, of Will Ferrell being the ghost of Christmas present and trying to convert an unconvertible Grinch uh, in Ryan Reynolds. Um, so that'd be my, my contemporary recommendation. Uh, an old classic, actually, I don't even know if this is any good. It's been a long time since I watched it, but I was recently reminded, uh, and I kind of want to rewatch it. So if anybody's up for that, uh, maybe we'll make it happen. Uh, but uh, there was a film back in the 90s. Uh, listen to this cast. Rita Wilson, uh, 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 Phil Hartman, Sinbad, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. The film was Jingle, Jingle All the, the way. way. And if you want you want a film that gets into what we talked about last week, the over-commercialization of Christmas. Well, this whole film is about two dads or more quest to find the one ungettable uh, action figure gift for their child. Um, it's silly. It's ridiculous. Uh, you know, I think at one point Arnold Schwarzenegger is like rocketing into the air in a Turbo Man outfit. Um, and... Uh, you know, it's sort of thing that I actually think, uh, again, I need to rewatch it, so I could be wrong. It might be one of these things that you go back and you're like, this is unwatchably bad. But I, I actually suspect it is aged like a fine wine. Uh, so uh, that's going to be my, my dark horse recommendation. I prefer my Sinbad to be on the seven seas. And my <laughs> recommendations are of a more actually classic nature. I prefer my uh, Sinbad, again, to also bring Phil Hartman into it, to be a house guest. So... <laughs> <laughs> The best Christmas movie that you can watch with your family is It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life is great not only for its wholesomeness but for its darker depths. Uh, It's a Wonderful Life is a movie that will teach you something about yourself. It will teach you something about what constitutes a wonderful life. Uh, To give you a glimpse into the strangeness of this film – after a disastrous sort of business deal that imperils, or not business deal, a, a disastrous business accident, we'll say, not to give anything away, that imperils his financial future, his family's financial future, the company that he has sacrificed his entire life to build. Jimmy Stewart, the protagonist, goes home and proceeds to berate his wife and children until becoming so angry that he kicks over a model bridge that he's been working on. At this point, he realizes just what he's done. He sees the horrified look on his family, and then he proceeds to get mad all over again. This is not something you will see in a modern film, but I think is deeply illustrative of the nature of human sin, of the difficult nature of repentance, of what change is, of what the gravity of the human condition is and what it takes to transform that. Um, and I would, I would heartily recommend that. Now, that movie does have its darker parts. And for smaller children, they may either be bored or terrified of the father figure berating the family, demanding that his youngest daughter resume playing the piano after he's created a horrible scene and reducing her to tears. That's fair. In line with that, there is a retelling of A Christmas Carol that is also has its darker moments, but there is a brilliant retelling from the 90s that manages to minimize this and make the story accessible to all ages, and that is A Muppet Christmas Carol, in which the lead, Michael Caine, as Ebenezer Scrooge, plays it straight while everyone else refuses to do so, and hearts are warmed all around. Well, Dan has so selfishly stolen one of my two recommendations in A Muppet Christmas Carol, so I'm just not going to attempt to replace it on the fly here and also give a uh, hearty recommendation to A Muppet Christmas Carol um, because it is as delightful as uh, Dan illustrates. I think arguably the best telling of uh, A Christmas Carol that exists out there and does prompt the wonderful conversation uh, starter. If you have a party, if you're getting together on either Christmas or New Year's and you want to do one of those fun party icebreaker things, ask people – 
okay, you can recast a movie, all right? Keep one original actor, and then everybody else is played by Muppets. It's a great fun party game. And I will use that to illustrate the other movie recommendation I'm going to make, uh, which is probably, you know, both. It's the non-traditional one because we've done a non-traditional and a traditional recommendation here largely. Uh, The non-traditional one, which should be a traditional one because it absolutely is a Christmas movie, is, of course, Die Hard. It is an action movie. Yes, there's a lot of violence and a lot of profanity in there. So it is not the movie to watch with the children, but absolutely is a Christmas movie. Christmas is integral to the plot of the film. Uh, Without the Christmas party taking place on uh, Christmas Eve, which is also baffling because who actually does that kind of thing uh it you, you do not have the same plot the musical score is infused with christmas music it is not christmas is not incidental to what happens in die hard and the answer to the question for the party game that i posed earlier is that you absolutely keep alan rickman as hans gruber and you recast everybody else in die hard as muppets it would be a delightful amazing film i only wish alan rickman were still with us so that we could have the Muppets Die Hard movie that we all so truly deserve. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. And I want to remind you that we're taking the next two weeks off for Christmas and New Year's. So there won't be episodes of this program for the next two weeks. We will be back in January. So in the meantime, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, and a happy new year to all of you from everyone here at Acton. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next year. me with the uh please don't eat a trump steak um i i especially don't eat a trump steak because i believe they haven't been sold in about 15 years and if you have one hanging around i don't think that's dry aging process that's that it's been going through